Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. We are sitting outside in what is actually a beautiful afternoon in New London, Connecticut. How are you doing, Zach? Doing well. Enjoying uh, not sweating in 95-degree heat for the first time in a while. Yeah, it's, it's, either been storm, it's either been thunderstorms or oppressive heat and no in-between. So what are you going to be ranting about today? Uh, I'll be ranting about the billionaire space race that we've all been subjected to over the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, I, God almighty. So speaking of Jeff Bezos, Mr. Burns on The Simpsons joined Homer's bowling team. First of all, do you remember the name of the bowling team? The Pin Pals. That's correct. And while he was part of the bowling team, uh, <laughs> while sharing a beer with Homer, Mr. Burns admitted to having what disease? And if you need a hint, I have one. I will take a hint. His fingernail fell off in the beer while he was holding leprosy. it. Leprosy. <laughs> yes. Goes, I thought it was leprosy, <laughs> but I'm like, I remember the scene. I don't remember why his fingernail fell yeah. off. That was also <laughs> when he goes up to get the, go- to get the uh, bowling ball and his hand just flaps back. <laughs> It is one of the secretly great episodes. Yes. Who didn't play? Was it Chief Wiggum's? Bar- uh, yes, it was Chief Wiggum. Chief Wiggum was bumped. Uh, where did uh, the Pin Pal shirt make another appearance in a Simpsons episode? Oh, with John Waters. That's correct. Yes, it's with the John, the John Waters episode. We're not going to nerd out on the Simpsons all evening. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing well, although there's this weird sense of, of like, I mean, I feel like Pesci going to his maid ceremony yeah. and then Goodfellas. I feel like there's a little heat around the corner. Yeah, well, pay, pay, pay no attention to the carpet in my backyard yeah, I, that we've laid out. What is going on here? So, we, Zach and I were kind of looking forward to a week off from preparing uh, because you guaranteed us, and I believe it was a guarantee the way Joe Namath famously married, married a guarantee is, don't worry, I don't have to pull out, I, I, I have a vasectomy. <laughs> You, you you guaranteed us that there would be no Tokyo Olympics. I was wrong. I was wrong. Yes, and here we are. Uh, luckily, I don't think Pinnacle was taking bets on that. Pinnacle is an offshore gambling system that I learned about when I was trying to figure out who I should bet for, uh, who I should put in for, well, you t- for archery in the uh, fantasy league we're in. Tell that to my guy on Jefferson Ave, who uh, <laughs> yeah hasn't been quite quite so hospitable. Uh, yeah, Andrew, that, you, that's why you, I asked me to bring you home in your in my trunk. Yeah, I, perhaps. I've, I've, ne- I've never noticed those casts you have around your thumbs. <laughs> things things happen. So we were supposed to be preparing. You were supposed to be preparing. I was because we weren't. We didn't have to prepare for our extemporaneous Lincoln Douglas style mm-hmm. debate in which. We didn't have to do anything, just show up and be our bright, witty selves, but which we kind of fail at anyway. But really, we, that's what we had to do. But instead, we spent, you know, 24 hours studying things that the U.S. Olympics screwed up and the International Olympics screwed up. But no bitterness. We're friends. I should now come in with the most <laughs> difficult dead or alive ever, but oh I will not. God. So what will you be ranting about today? In light of a new, uh, newly released documentary uh, about Woodstock 90, 1999, uh, I'm going to talk about how the thing, the, the things that made that such a, an epic uh, shit show failure, the forces there that are kind of still lingering in our politics now, 22 years later. Sounds very interesting. And thank yeah. you for giving that scrappy underdog Bill Simmons a, a, a little a, a little, a little shout out yeah. because I, you know. He, he needs it. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really do enough self-promoting. So anyway, uh, I asked you earlier when we were off air about the two people Christian Leitner's 
uh, outscored, and I think you got one of them right. I did. And I did that because I was thinking about the coaches. Who were the four coaches of the Dream Team, and are they dead or alive? Okay. Uh, Chuck Daly was the head coach, and he is deceased. Yes, he is. One of the assistants, I believe, was once a rant target of yours. I believe P.J. Carlissimo. That is correct. One is... 92. Um, give me a second. I'm sorry. I really want to say... And Carlissimo was alive. I don't know. Did I say that? Anyway. Was Shashevsky a coach on that team? No, oh, he was fuck. not. Can I take a stab? I lost, but like stab the other no, two. No, no, you can go. You can try um, it. Lenny Wilkins? Lenny Wilkins was exactly a fuck. coach on that Should've team. Should that first. And the fourth was with the three assistants, right? There were three assistants. And the fourth was... Um, oh, I'm actually, you know what? I screwed up. Mike Shashevsky was. So you've got it. You did get it. Wait, really? Yeah, Shashevsky was. And she's alive, and Wilkins. She, she says he's alive. He'll never die. He'll never die. He's a, he's a vampire. Yeah, he'll he'll be talking. Um, uh, he'll be complaining about things that don't matter. Seventy years after all of us are dead, no, Shashevsky, PJ Carlosimo, and Lenny Wilkins. Yeah, man. Uh, so I don't think the assistant coaches were really the key to victory there. They were not. <laughs> I think about that. Damn, Lenny Wilkins was a good coach. He, I, he, I think he was the head coach in '96. I think. Yeah, and he's still alive. Still alive. Yeah, everybody's still alive. So you won it again. And, uh, Dad, what will you be ranting about today? So I will be ranting about the racism in British sports and the incredibly low bar that Boris Johnson set for himself, which he seems to have cleared, but Donald Trump couldn't get near. And with that, we will be back with our rants on the Bill Bradley Collective. Passing through the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. So in lieu of achieving more holes than one on this Saturday morning, <laughs> I decided to uh, spend the early part of, the, of today uh, watching the recently released HBO documentary, on the 1999 iteration of Woods, the Woodstock uh, Music Festival. First of all, it's really good. Um, it's a production of our frenemies at The Ringer in partnership with HBO. Bill Simmons is, a, is, an exe- is an executive producer on this project, and it's really good. Woodstock 99, to me, I was like 11 at the time, and I was in very much into like a lot of the bands that were the... The headline acts, the Limp Biscuits and the Corns and Metallica and Kid Rock, Brandon. Because I was 11 and I was, you know, a white male in suburbia, you know. Hot Topic was blowing up and, those, you know, that sort of new metal um, was, was kind of the thing for, like, for young white men at the time. Gladly this phase left shortly after Woodstock 99 for me. I'm still in it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this was a festival that was just marred by by violence, by sexual assaults, by um, essentially just, it was one of the most corporatized events in like American history. Famously, uh, $4 bottles of water in 110 degree heat over three days, porta potties overflowing. There's no water. There's no, it's, it's, it's just absolute chaos. 
And I didn't glean, and I, and I knew all this coming into this documentary, and I didn't glean a whole lot of like new information from it. But what I did glean was sort of like a perspective of this, that the same gentleman that was behind the original Woodstock in 1969, 30 years before, the same guy was behind this. The same guy, 30 years older, 30 years more rich, was behind booking this this concert. They do a Woodstock in 1994 that minus like the the mud fight between Green Day and the fans, which was actually kind of like congenial and peaceful. It was fun. It wasn't marred by like violence in in corporatism, and it was kind of just it was something that almost appropriated the original Woodstock, which the original Woodstock had a lot of fucking warts too that are glossed over historically. That's neither here nor nor there. But you have the same guy that takes sort of the you know three days of like peace, love, and. What is it? Peace, love, and music. Peace, love, and whatever. peace, love, and music. Yeah. Well, 1999. If you're booking acts, the headline acts are the likes of like bands like Corn and Limp Bizkit and Rage Against the Machine and Metallica, and it, it's essentially. And you have a handful. There is some like token diversity in the bill, but the prime time, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday night bands are all like they're loud and they're aggressive and they're they're violent and they sort of encapsulate um, just kind of like white frat boy angst and. The whole thing's a shit show, and the whole thing to me in that this festival goes on, and the, and the people that decided that this was the th- these are the bands that Gen X wants to see. The person that decided that was thirty years too old to make that decision, <laughs> and we still see that in our po- we saw it in our politics in nineteen ninety nine. We see it in our politics today, where again we we banged the Feinstein drum, we banged the Pelosi drum, Joe Biden. I'm trying, but he's he's fucking old. All right. And these are, the, these are the people that are making the decisions for, you know, people leaving college, entering the workforce, starting families that are like the foundation of America moving forward 20, 30, 40 years. And not only that, you have in 1999, and the documentary gets into this, you have uh, DMX is, and there's a couple of rap acts on, on this show, and it's the, the Roots play, Wyclef Jean plays. Wyclef Jean fails terribly at recreating Jimi Hendrix's like lighting the guitar on fire. He plays a pretty good anthem, but then he just totally he fucks up burning the guitar, and it's not good. But like DMX, and he and he's and again, this is a very white crowd, and there's a lot of he has a song at the time that I'm not gonna. It's a hit where like essentially the chorus is the N word, and he's there's like that give and take between like performer and crowd where I sing one line, you sing the next, and you've never seen. 300,000 white people more excited to say the n-word than in response to dmx and it's like yeah and we're still dealing with this really and it's only become more like today like there were just a lot of women uh were because of the heat walking around topless and just being like grossly it was really gross then it's really gross looking back on it now and it's it's kind of like a a microcosm of we really haven't progressed much in 20 years on women's rights and the, a woman's body, uh, you know, a woman's right to control her body because women there that are going topless um, to kind of just not fucking drop dead from dehydration are still being just unsolicitedly fondled by uh, white frat boys. Um, it's a really good documentary. Check it out. But it, 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 what struck me was kind of the, in 22 years, and I remember what's like 99, you know, Everything changes. Everything stays the same. It's a it's a weird portrait of America when, today. When I watched the Fire Festival Festival documentaries, it re, it, it reminded me of, of Woodstock '99, in that it was not well planned out. 
it was a world, even in 1999, now I'm 37 years old, I don't, these are not my bands. Um, you know, and, and I think just stepping back from, stepping back now, I think we could all agree that Corn has not aged as well as Jimi Hendrix. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, Limp Bizkit not as well as The Who. Well, maybe. But... <laughs> And everything after Tommy's unlistenable. But I, I just remember thinking that while I was watching those documentaries. But the thing that, that really struck me about Woodstock, the original Woodstock, is that 30-year arc where the guy who started it has become this corporate monster is the 30-year arc of baby boomers. That, you know, that, that show Family Ties with Michael Keaton in reality, the parents Michael, become Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. In the, in reality, the parents become Alex Keaton because they have discovered that living with social consciousness costs you some personal enjoyment. We don't feel like doing that. That's that's annoying. Um, yeah, it, it's just that, that ultimately, ultimately for the hippies, it was going to be both. You got to express yourself and be joyful, and you also had to be, and you got to be socially conscious. And then at some level, you have to make a distinction. They said, "Well." Socially conscious seems like work. Yeah, it's like it's like the uh, the dad quote in SLC Punk, which is a movie that came out similar time as as Woodstock '99, where he said, you know, oh, I didn't sell out, I bought in. You know, I I had to do this, and it's like, no, you didn't. You know, you look at Woodstock, the original Woodstock. It's like kind of a counterculture movement. Woodstock '99 was just anger. It was just like anger and corporatization and like the worst parts of America just like put on front and center stage like the racism like you just said with like the call and response to DMX the sexual abuse that women take because like corporations are just diminishing them by not allowing them to get like the basic necessity of water in a hot day you know it's it's and and like, they did not they did not give out the bottles of water when people were passing out they no. continued to sell them for four dollars I had said that I didn't glean much new information from this doc, and I'm going to actually go back on that and say, to that point, this to me, that Woodstock 99 was the absolute peak of just craven corporate. It was, it was, Nothing since has been so like consumer-unfriendly than this event. It was a logical, it was a logical extension of MTV. That, There's a lot of shit in there about the doc. Check it out. Yeah, I, I, I don't have HBO, but I will. I'll give something. you my login, man. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to talk about uh, racism in British sports. I was weirdly watching the uh, Italy-England game last week for the Europe. Is that those European titles? Yeah, the UEFA. Yeah. Oh, right. no, that's, uh, yeah, yep. You, you're, you're Euro. Right. Call it. Euro top. And I was watching it in the bar because I wasn't going to watch soccer any other place. And it was on, and I enjoyed it very much. You know, and they get down to the penalty shots because, to me, in soccer, it's like, well, the game we're playing will never, will never score. So let's play a different game entirely and see if we can decide it that way. It's like if NBA games in overtime were decided by archery. And <laughs> there were black players on that team who, after England lost, have just had incredible abuse hipped, uh, heaped on them. The series started with them kneeling to protest racism. One of uh, Boris Johnson's Captain officers called it gesture politics. Actually, it seems like his chief of staff called it gesture politics. Somebody else said that they were never going to watch the game until they stood for the national anthem. Prime, the prime minister himself said he fully respects the rights of those who choose to peacefully protest and make 
their feelings known. First of all, with Boris Johnson, we could see what Donald Trump would be like if he had 18 points higher IQ. Now, yeah. Boris Johnson's IQ is 97. I mean, let's not get excited. But, you know, he can read. He can spell dual, D-U-E-L, if he means that. <laughs> um, and so, but he's trying to back up. And to his credit, a man by the name of Tyrone Mings, who is a defender, a defenseman, said, quote, you don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tourney, tournament by labeling our anti-racism message as gesture politics and then print, pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. All I could think of as I read this is, A, there is a reason why we have a never-ending, never-breaking relationship with England. And a lot of it is our attitude toward race. As governments, our attitude towards race don't vary that much. You know, Thatcher and Reagan came in together. That, you know, Blair and Clinton came in together. That, you know, these, these kind of, the, the politics tend to, to mimic each other, and a lot of that is race-based. But it's also that, this, you know, wherever you are, you cannot isolate sports from the rest of society. You just can't do it. Yeah, I, I think people really believe, like, when they watch a soccer match, you know, in England, or when they watch a football game in America, that, well, I guess it would be a football game in England and a football game in America, but when people watch that, they think, like, okay, I can just disconnect from the horror show that is the world and my life for three hours, and that's all they want. They just want to disconnect, and that's just not reality, because if you're a black player in England... And you're celebrated all year, and then you miss a shot at the end. You're a 19-year-old who misses a shot in, at the end of the game that costs your team the tournament. Then they're going to be just massively racist against you. Like, they, like the people themselves can't disconnect from it. Like, they bring their attitudes towards it. You, you can't be someone else for three hours. You're always you. Yeah. Like, no matter what you're doing, you're always you. And to take it even a step further, like, this isn't only, it's not, it's not isolated to England as far as, like, <laughs> European club football's uh, racial problems. It's, it's, this shit happens in Italy. It happens in Germany. It happens everywhere. And FIFA and UEFA have really done a, a fucking terrible job of dealing with crowd chants, opposition players, racially harassing players of color. It's it's a big problem. And as and as we and, and we talked about it when we talked about some of the things that happened that John Morant's family were uh, things of that nature in the States where these, what happens over there at these, at these high profile soccer matches is like a lot fucking worse than what we see here. Everything you need to know about FIFA is Thomas Bach, who we will be talking about in a little bit because he's the president of the international Olympic committee said, we are not as bad as FIFA. And, while people thought that was an incredibly low bar, no one corrected him. And we'll be talking about the IOC. Yeah, FIFA might bar. be the worst-run gangster organization in the in the world. And to round us off today, I'm going to ta be talking about something that we've all been forcefully subjected to, thanks to our media, uh, for the last two weeks, three weeks. It started with Richard Branson taking a nine-minute trip in in a low part of space and then coming back down. And then it was followed up by Jeff Bezos going slightly higher for about two minutes longer. Um, and a rocket that 
can only be described as uh, phallic. Phallic. <laughs> phallic would be the right term. And it's one of those things you look at, and it's just these are billionaires. These are the rich just taking things we've already done, doing lesser versions of them, and then hoping to be congratulated for it. This reminds me of when uh, Elon Musk wanted to make the speed tunnel in in Los Angeles to deal with traffic, which was just a slower subway system. He still is. He still is. Uh, yeah, that's totally a real thing. It's already done in Vegas. It, yeah, it's just a slower subway system. It's just, it's a, it. we ha- we have this already. You made a worse version. You We already went to space. We went to the moon. We've sent things to Mars. We've orbited the Earth. All you're doing is going up for 11 minutes and everyone's going, yay, yay. Now, at the same time this is happening, a thousand mining workers have gone on strike in Alabama to protest unfair working conditions and low wages, and we haven't heard a fucking word about that. So for for every presidential election for four years, we get to hear about how important the goddamn miners are, that we can't do anything with climate change because the miners will get upset. We can't ever address carbon footprints because the miners will get upset. But when the miners are actually doing something that is bettering themselves, the media instead is covered just this billionaire space race. Is this something anyone care anyone wanted or anyone asked for i mean these are billionaires that pay less in taxes than all of us do at this table yeah and yeah not in terms of total dollars but in terms of percentage, percentage of income yeah. it's not it's not even close frida lay went on strike this week i you the only way i know that is because unions tweeted out and i follow unions on twitter otherwise i would not know that because no one mentions it because our corporate, our our media is all owned by large corporations. You don't expect the Washington Post to poke fun at this because yes, Jeff Bezos owns it. When that took off, the, the president should have immediately had broken in with a national emergency and said, that's it. We're done. We're changing the tax structure. People shouldn't be flying into fucking space because they can. That this is the gilded age on, never mind on steroids, on, on well, whatever, whatever is higher than steroids on fentanyl, it's 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 the gilded age on fentanyl. It is just such a disgrace, and I have never hoped for anything to burn up into reentry more than that. I mean, that may make me a bad person. Oh. I'll live with it. Oh no, the only reason I watched any clips was to hopefully see an explosion when they came back. Because oh, yeah, I, was- I get, I guess a billionaire died. What? I was excited to watch, and I was like, oh, it's so cool. There's, like, this 18-year-old kid. He's probably, like, really, really smart, and they're going to take him to space because he wants to be an editor. No, no, no. Then you find out, and it's like, oh, it's a fucking rich kid. God damn it. Yeah, it's, he it's, didn't it's, earn it's, that at all. His like, father paid $25 yeah. million. Yeah. Dollars. Fuck you. Right. I was like, I was like, oh, there's, like, a kid on that. That's so cool. They brought a little really smart. The, you know, the only reason nope. it would be cool nope, is it's, if it's all about money. said Elon Musk fondled me. But, uh, yeah. or, or, uh, Bezos <laughs> fondled me. And Elon Musk today put out this tweet condemning government purchasing, and he's a government contractor yeah i mean it's, it's kind of like being in a boat there's implications because he can fondle you're in space yeah you're on space. <laughs> <laughs> the entire thing is it's the answer to a question that nobody ever asked it's like the the jeff goldblum quote from jurassic park where he's like you guys you always you thought about whether we could can we do this can we do this we never thought about whether you should have done it and the whole thing is a natural progression as income inequality becomes much more disparate where Okay, rich guys, you know, have these like big dick waving contests of like who has the nicest car, and then the nicest car becomes the nicest boat, nicest boat becomes the nicest yacht, nicest yacht becomes the nicest plane, and nicest plane and beyond becomes nicest rocket ship that can take us into to Mars or whatever the fuck. I could fucking just care less about 
I had no interest in watching any of this. I, I, I think it's just, a, I think it's gross. Gross. And uh, with that, we also want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Amazon.com, uh, for this week. Uh, so after this, after this brief ad, we'll be back with our main topic on the Tokyo Olympics on the Bill Bradley Collective. Hi, your dog here. I see you're sitting down reading a magazine. Have you given much thought lately to ear scratches? Here, let me help you by nosing aside that distraction and positioning my head right under your hand. There, isn't that better? <sighs> my silky fur and the way I'm closing my eyes right now have been clinically shown to bring down your blood pressure and add years to your life. Wait, no, don't pick that back up. <laughs> to get the full benefit of ear scratches, doctors recommend continuing for 90 consecutive minutes. Oh, all right, how about three? Ear scratches, yeah, that's the spot. So we're gonna be talking about this particular Olympics and probably more generally the Olympic movement in general um, and how this this reflects it. I'm going to start a little bit about, based on something that I read in a Michael Bauman article in The Ringer, I cannot recommend this article enough for you. The modern Olympic Games was started by Pierre du uh, Coubertin, who wanted to create a contemporary parallel so that he could have make this a monument to, quote, excellence, peaceful competition, and international cooperation. He died the year after the 1936 Olympics, so he probably realized that his dream was a complete failure by then. I don't think he can imagine where it was going no. uh, in terms of the horror of it. Today, we are having an Olympics in a country that has 5,000 new cases per day of COVID. That they had a bubble idea. Did you guys hear about the bubble idea? Yes. Isn't the village supposed to be the bubble? Yeah, but the problem was it was going to be that they were... You could be there, but nobody else could be there. All right? That was the idea. But as Alex Morgan pointed out, that that separated nursing mothers from their children. And also, in the village are the Paralympians, some of whom are blind and need AIDS. So they had to get rid of that. By the way, the least surprising thing in, in human history is that the IOC did not think about how this would impact women. Like that or, just, or the disabled. Or the disabled. What a shock. Yeah. In the past week, the past week, the IOC, well, the IOC chairman, um, Bach, who I left off my list of the 10 worst people in sports, or five worst people in sports, and I had him there, and I just forgot him, was he thanked the Chinese for all their efforts in making this Olympics happen. Because we all know that the Chinese and the Japanese get along swimmingly historically. Japan has famously never invaded mainland China. <laughs> <laughs> they are. The composer for the opening ceremonies, Kiago Okiyama, resigned after provable allegations that he bullied disabled children. There's a conversation, a sentence that you don't want connected to you. Well, did you bully disabled children? It's like, well, I wouldn't call it bullying. There's no good answer yeah. for that. And the opening ceremony director uh, was fired after they discovered jokes he made about the Holocaust. So, which I had like YouTube, uh, because he was a comedian. That was in the last week. He's, so, a bad, he's a bad comedian. So, Zach, 
How do you think this Olympics is kicked off? Uh, you know, I think it's kicked off about as well as any of us could expect it to. You know, we've talked a little bit about this in past episodes, but the the IOC is seems to be one of the more incompetent organizations. But that's almost secondary to the fact that Japan is a country with a super low vaccination rate. And they're not saying like we have a low vaccination rate, we're not taking the vaccine, COVID isn't real, we all want we're gonna have fans, like they seem to not want us there because they wanted to protect themselves and the athletes and everyone and they just didn't want to deal with this. Because I think their vaccination rate's like under ten percent. It's very low and it's, it's cultural. There is a there's a cultural stigma in Japan that is just anti vaccination. And for whatever for whatever reason, but I, it, it really strikes me as like I we, we got together with some friends uh, on Friday night to watch the opening ceremonies, and there were certain times I'm watching going, this is so fucking weird. Like these people are waving at no one. Like these, <laughs> the, the, this is happening, and everyone's acting like it's normal, and there's no one there, and the people don't want us there, and like they kept showing the people like wide shots of Tokyo and it's like everyone that lives there is really pissed off this is happening right now it just feels like a, a massive unwarranted unsolicited like invasion it's it almost feels invasionary um that they're going that they've gone forth with this and then they've now commenced and I just I, there's a sense of violation to what is going on I mean it was, it was unclear up until like Thursday if we were even going to have the opening ceremonies on Friday like it, it, it was it was that level where the emperor had said he didn't want it. Like the prime minister, like everyone in Japanese government had been like, we can, we can end the games. We can, you know, there's no guarantee we're going to have the games. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think they were wrong. To, to be clear, when you say most people, the poll that was done in May, 83% of Japanese voters, which by the way is the exact same thing of people eligible to vote. Everybody votes yeah. in Japan. 83% of Japanese voters wanted the games canceled like not like well i have some concerns no should they be canceled 83 percent said yes and then they bring them in anyway they've banned international flights so the entire idea that well i know it is a big expense but economically you can make up for it because this massive tourism that we're going to have well you have the olympics without any tourism so what's that like yeah, the only the only benefit that any host country gets from the Olympics, and it's why the Olympics is such a boondoggle half the time, is tourism. And right now we're having the, these athletes aren't going out into into Japan. There's nothing open in Japan. Like they're still basically in a lockdown. You saw in Rio, especially, a lot of the infrastructure that was in place for the Olympics came into place because the Olympics were coming there. It was all built the, the years leading up after they were awarded it. Japan had Tokyo had a lot of infrastructure. But not enough to sort of offset the cost of not having uh, audiences in tourism. I mean, Japan, Tokyo, Japan s stands to be like a pretty large fiscal loser, I imagine, from this. Which yeah, <laughs> they don't it, want it there in the first place. So now it's, yeah, we know. didn't want it. We really don't want it. And we're gonna uh, thank you. For, we're gonna thank, suffer. Thank you for being here. And I have a question. I think Andrew put it best. Like this kind of does feel invasionary. Like, do you think? Why does the IOC? Not do you think? But why does the IOC? have the right to simply impose some these games on a country that clearly does not want it. Well, Craven because, megalomania. <laughs> well, well, because no, because they entered a contract. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, no, you, you buy a car and then you realize, well, I don't really want this car. You still got to pay for the car. Like, that's, that's the that's deal. That's true, yeah. And, but the IOC, and of course, they've changed the rules about how countries 
get the Olympics since then because they had to admit that the way it was done was so inherently corrupt. I mean, these IOC members who are quote-unquote volunteers were raking in money hand over fist because they were just bribed constantly. Yeah. We saw it in Utah. We saw it in Atlanta. We saw it all over the place. Uh, Brazil, every, like everywhere there was bribery. So they changed the rules. And in fact, in 19, uh, in uh, coming up in Brisbane, that was a sealed, like closed process. They changed the process so that it would be less rich countries bidding against poorer countries. There would be less bribery. There would be all of that. They, they thought we could get rid of it. But then, of course, in exchange for those noble goals, they took away all transparency. And so in 1930, I mean, 2032, they just this week awarded it to Brisbane, Australia. But lo and behold, John Coates, the president of the Australian Olympic Committee, is an IOC member and also one of Thomas Bach's best friends. So they replaced one kind of corruption for a completely different kind of corruption. This will be the third time in 70 years, that, or 80 years, that Brisbane will have, well, that Australia, Australia will have yeah. the Summer Olympics, despite the fact it's winter there. I, you know, we're going to come back to Brisbane later on, but can you imagine, like, it is boilingly hot in Japan right now because of climate change. It's just they're seeing heat that they don't normally see. It's just, it's incredibly hot. You see athletes just sweating, doing nothing. Can you imagine how hot Brisbane, Australia is going to be? Like, even if it's their winter, it's going to be so fucking hot there. Again, it's a, like, Australia is basically a desert that has a beach. Or if you remember uh, the Sydney Games in 2000, they, they they had it, it was in September. It wasn't even like a proper summer. I believe the games took place over the first three three weeks of September. So they had to, and again, it, Tokyo has to go outside Tokyo for this. This isn't like a, the idea of a bubble where there's events here that essentially, and obviously the size of Japan versus like say the States, the United States, they're taking events out of Tokyo and they're putting them in Osaka and Yokohama and Saitama these other sort of metropolises that are, it's not unlike, it's its akin to basically just being like, we're going to have U.S. Olympic Games, and it's going to be in Chicago, and it's going to be in New York, and uh, L.A., whatever. It's, the country is a bubble. The country, not, not just Tokyo, Tokyo proper, the whole country is compromised by this because well, of where they're, where they're taking the games. And, and we've already seen... It's not happening in this one concentrated spot. It's it's we, our country. We've already seen outbreaks. I mean, Coco Golf, who's one of the best tennis players in the world, is not playing. Because she right. tested positive for COVID. We've already seen it. And, you know, we also have to think about scale. Okay, the NBA is a big deal. But a bubble in the NBA is doable. A bubble for the Olympics? It's like 20 times as many people. And so, you know, with all different needs and stuff, plus you have horses. Like they're, I know the NBA guys are rich. None of them brought their horses to, to the uh, – to the bubble. I mean, there's just so much. It's, it's just so complicated. Approximately 200 separate national delegations. So I want to like, what the fuck? <laughs> sorry, so I want to I want to swap switch over to a minute to talk about this the political element of this, which obviously matters to us. Rule 50 of the IOC Charter says no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other arenas. 
Now, I would like to point out that Rule 50, which was in place at the time, did not affect Nazi Germany. Yeah, it was in place at the time. I was just going to say, like, when did that get adopted? 37? No, it's like it goes way back. But the IOC has now read this to say, okay, athletes can now wear apparel, including including words such as, obviously, the English equivalent of peace, respect, solidarity, and inclusion, and equality, but could not put Black Lives Matter on anything. And also, they can protest but they can only do it in the call room or a similar area, not on the podium, and not allowed if it is targeted directly or indirectly against people, countries, or organizations, or if it is disruptive, basically if it's a protest. Um, and when asked directly, the Tommy Smith, Juan Carlos would not have been allowed. I was just about to think, I'm like, that's, a, that's an iconic moment in Olympic history. Right. Which- we, they, they, they show it. The Olympics show it in their right. commercials. Yeah. As, as, as yeah. though they didn't handle it as badly as humanly yeah, possible. They, they were, oh, look at us. Well, yeah, they weren't allowed to run in the relays. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what do you think about the IOC's attempts to handle the politicization of an Olympic event which celebrates everybody by nationality? Like everything else they do, pathetic. The IOC is fucking compromised. It's as compromised, if not greater than the NCAA, than FIFA, I'm I'm not gonna say burn it down, but I might just say burn it down. I don't know what the I don't know what this looks like going forward. I don't I don't know. I I I, I was immediately struck by you know Andrew what you said kind of in your rant earlier <clears throat> about these people that are 30, 40 years disconnected from the cultural significance of the moment that remain the power this, brokers remain the power brokers and making the decisions. Only somebody who is completely disconnected from the Black Lives Matter movement, only somebody who is completely disconnected from the protest or activist movement or what is happening in, in, not only in America, across the world. Like, we are not unique in our protests. You know, the Black Lives Matter protests in America were joined by protests across the world, uh, protesting similar issues, racial injustice. And for them to say, like, this now violates, you can't do this. Even though you're out there, you're, you're expressing your nationality, your ethnicity, your race, your, your pride, you're bringing pride. You know, I mean, how many times when somebody's the first black athlete to do something, they go, they're the first black athlete to do something. So you're saying you're the first black athlete to do something. We'll celebrate your blackness, but therefore, if you celebrate your blackness, you'll be banned. So, you know, I mean, the thing is, and you just triggered something in me that, say, Simone Biles has, can recognize herself as an American even though the U.S. Gymnastic Association uh, or organization has been horrifying, and they're now bankrupt, by the way. They're bankrupt because they've had to pay off so many people on the Nasser suits. Um, that's his name, right, Dr. Larry Nasser. Larry yeah. Nasser, uh, And, and he treated those women abominably. That she has to connect herself to, to that person, but she's not an, allowed to connect herself to a black gymnast in Great Britain, or a black gymnast in Jamaica, that 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 connection's not allowed. That we're deciding arbitrarily that national boundaries are more important than shared experiences, and that in itself is incredibly offensive. Her her achievements and those of others of of that magnitude, the IOC wants that to be a reflection of them. And their so-called air quotes embrace of of inclusion inclusion and progressivism instead of championing 
what she's accomplished for women, for black women, for country. It's fucking, it's just, it's bullshit. I would also like to mention, to just when you think it can't get any lower, Alan Hodzik was flown on his own plane to uh, Japan because he's an alternate on the uh, in Epe in the American fencing. Um, that Safe Sports suspended him, but he won a uh, he 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 won his arbitration because he is accused of sexual assault <laughs> on other fencers. I think for girls who are pretty young. Yeah. And these are credible accusations that are having le- being investigated legally now. So they put him in, they flew him there at their expense on a different plane. He has to stay in a different place. He's not allowed to practice with the team. He asked for a, a restrictions to be taken away. And all 24 fencers wrote a letter complaining about it. I would say that he is the only American fencer who I can name right off the top of my head, which is probably not a good sign. Meanwhile, Shakari Richardson is sitting at home because she smoked marijuana, which is legal in the state she smoked it in. That it seems to me that what the Olympics really celebrate is the hypocrisy of corporate America and the distancing of the people who run things from the reality that the athletes live. I mean, there are women fencers who probably would not have gone if he was there because he's a serial rapist. Yeah, it, allegedly. Alleged, and, and it strikes me as like that is just so uniquely American right now in our time that you know there's this Me Too movement, there's this uprising, there's this acknowledgement about the abuse that women have faced for years and decades and decades and decades at the hands of men, at the hands of power, and at the hands of institutional power, and then this guy who is facing legal challenges is still allowed to compete that the U.S. Olympic Committee still felt the need that it was so important to have him as an alternate that they would send him over there, but it was so abhorrent that Shakari Richardson smoked a joint after her mother's funeral that she can't run. It, it just strikes me as like, you know what? I wonder what the difference is between Alan Hedzik from Montclair, New Jersey, and Shakari Richardson that would cause this difference in... Uh, actions, you know, and, I, I, something tells me I can't put my finger on what the difference is between Allen and Shakari. And, and by the way, President Biden, who I like and respect, I know rules are rules. Rape is a rule too. You can't rape people. That's a rule, and it's a little more important than smoking a joint, in my humble opinion. As one who has done one but not the other, <laughs> it's a good opinion. So Michael Bauman said in his article, he quoted Lincoln, and he he talked about the House Divided speech. And he said, well, that has become a bromide that it's just two sentences later that matters. You cannot be all one thing and all another. You have to be one or the other. And the Olympic ideal has, which could be an ideal we're, we're pointing toward and not reaching, but it still matters. The way, to me, the Declaration of Independence is an ideal we point toward but don't reach. The Declaration of Independence still matters because we hold that up to be the better, the better angels of ourselves, as, as Lincoln said. That this Olympic ideal, we have moved, it just we just are on a train away from it. In 1936, will there be an Olympics? Try to be in 20, 2036. 2036. Yeah, 1936 there will be, and it was bad, but we'll do a show about it. <laughs> yeah. But 2036, will there be an Olympics? Yeah. Under this format. 
Yes. And I think it's that number convenient. I think it might be the last. So you've got Brisbane is 2032, right? It'll be the 150th anniversary, I think. They got one more. And that's a, it's 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 I don't think it's a, a 20 year thing. I think, in you know, 50 years, this is not this can't happen. It, 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 it's, it's not sustainable. I think I think there will be, but I'm with you that it's going to be we're going to be Just, seeing the end of the Olympics because I mean one thing that's important to note about the Brisbane Olympics in 2032 is they were the only ones that bid. If nobody bids, there's no Olympics. And well, bing, it was behind point. closed doors. It was behind closed doors. We don't really know, but probably it, yeah. seems that, to, it seems to be that they were the only ones that had an interest in it for the third and I don't, the third choice city in Australia to get a games. I mean, we're talking you know. London and Rio and and Tokyo and Los Angeles going forward, Paris, Brisbane. That's yeah, where I, we're I, at it, now. Like, it, think about the international magnitude of Brisbane versus all of those other see, I, I, I think I like, think what we're more likely to see is we'll, we will see poorer countries uh, taking the risk of saying, we will gamble everything on the Olympics in the tourism money to sustain us. Abu Dhabi. And, we, and we will see, yeah, and we will see rich con- and we will see rich countries say, yeah. "We are not doing this anymore." See, I, I'm, I don't think so. I think 2036, there will be some kind of international event, but it'll be like the Goodwill Games were, where a corporation runs it, and it'll be just a, it'll just be a corporate experience. That the idea. The whole Olympic ideal will be removed, and corporations will be involved, so, and that will suck in some ways because there will be no more Jamaica bobsledding team. But unless they realize there's movie potential there, but I, I just think that at some point, it's like this becomes unstomachable. I'm not sure that's a word, but it should be. And I think we're at the point. It's unstomachable. So, it's really. If it weren't for this crazy fantasy league we were in, I would be paying no attention whatsoever. So the the Goodwill Games were a it was a Ted Turner adventure, and I think why they didn't go forward with it after I think ninety eight might have been the last time they had it was because he fuck he took a loss on it. He well, made him yeah, make but, money, which the, is at the heart of. But the thing about the Goodwill is, Games is it was successful early on because Russia didn't go to America didn't go to one and Russia didn't go to the other. So it was an international event that, because the Olympics were not complete, if you will, it had its own niche. If there's no Olympics, because I don't, I mean, the UL, it seems to me the IOC is going to end up just in a blizzard of lawsuits. And like the American gymnastics, they're going to have to declare bankruptcy. The American gymnastics team declared bankruptcy. Um, I really recommend, I already recommended one thing for people to read. So the article in the New York Times on Simone Biles that came out today, uh, today's Saturday. So the 20, what the hell's today? 22nd? 24th. 24th is an amazing article because they had to declare bankruptcy I, because of all the lawsuits. I just don't see how the IOC avoids that fate. So with that, that positive note, we will end. One of the things that we do recognize watching the game is in the Northeast here, we recognize our privilege that we can go out pretty much unmasked into large crowds because we know most of Connecticut is vaccinated. We hope all our listeners are vaccinated. If you are not vaccinated, please do so. It is not just best for you, but it's your responsibility to your neighbors. 
we hope the whole world understands this. We certainly hope that the people in our state and in other states recognize the responsibility we have to each other. So with that, we will say goodnight on the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please smash that subscribe button and follow us on Facebook at the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll see you all again next week.